0: Morning, church. My name is David Wilson. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 20, 1 through 2, and verse 16. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Donna. The New Testament reading is found in 3 John 3 and 4. I was overjoyed when the brothers and sisters arrived and spoke highly of your faithfulness to the truth, shown by how you live according to the truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are living according to the truth, the word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Cassie Kerrigan. And if you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John one fourteen through seventeen. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, crying out, this is the one of whom I said, he who comes after me is greater than me because he existed before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. As the law was given through Moses, so grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world full of grace and truth. And we pray that you would make your grace and your truth made known to us today as we think and talk and study and walk through your words. Would you continue to reveal yourself to us? May we see you clearly in the face of Jesus. And may the spirit of truth guide us into your rhythms and your ways. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. I want to say again a special welcome to all the kids who are in the room with us uh, today. And for everybody who's watching online, it's good to be together. I don't remember the first lie that I ever told. I'm sure I was really young, I'm sure it started early, but I do remember one of the worst lies I ever told. I was 16 years old and I had gotten up early one morning to head out to my friend Jana's house. I lived in a small farming community in Northern Iowa and Jana lived out on some gravel roads. And I got up early, went out there to spend the day with her. And on the, I, on the way back, I was hurrying back because I think I had to be at baseball practice or go work at the grocery store or something. I can't remember what it was, uh, but I decided to take a different road back. And I was going way too fast period for a gravel road, but didn't know also that they had just regraded that gravel road. So here I am in my Oldsmobile Cutlass Calais, going you know, however fast that little thing could go, down this gravel road, over this hill, and I hit a patch of loose gravel. Immediately, my car begins to 360 in the road and then goes and flips down into the ditch. I have no clue how many times the car turned over. I just knew the whole car was smashed in except for the driver's side. Miraculously, I walked out of the car and sort of like frantically made it to the nearest farmhouse. This was before cell phones, so I had to go there and use the landline, you know, to dial the number and call my folks, tell them what happened. So they come out and they're like, hey, what happened, what went wrong? And I said, well, I was driving, and I came over this hill, and there was this dog, and I think it was black, and I swerved to miss it, and I just lost control of the car. Could not own up to the fact that I was going too fast, and I blamed it on a dog. Years later, like I remember this, uh, I don't know if I, if I was in worship or I was in prayer, but I just suddenly felt like, oh man, I need, to tell, I need to tell my mom the truth. And so I'm probably in college or my early 20s at this point. And I come, I'm at home and I'm like, hey mom, you remember that time when I was 16 and I rolled that car and I said it, there was this dog. And she's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, there was no dog. She's like, yeah, we know there was no dog. I'm like, what do you mean, you know, there was no dog? She's like, we knew you were lying the whole time. Like, how do you know I was lying? She's like, there are no dogs in that neighborhood. So growing up in a small town, they knew every farmhouse that was on that road, and they knew none of them owned a black dog. So they immediately knew, "Oh my God, this dude's lying." But they were gracious enough to me in my sort of like hyper state of being terrified, not to call me out on it right then and there, and to sort to find out like I'm really not that good of a liar. <laughs> We're in the series on the Ten Commandments right now, and we're walking through these words that God spoke to the people of Israel, and we're at the ninth word today. And the ninth word says this, the ninth commandment where God says to his people, he says, do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. The original context of the command is pretty clear. This is talking specific about Israel's court system. This idea, when you're called to court, when you come to a trial, when there is a conversation happening within the community about who did what, and we're trying to determine the truth of what happened, when you go into those situations, do not testify falsely. So this recognition that in those situations, we need the truth, because without truth, there can't be justice. Without truth, there can't be justice. If we're going to make things right, if we're going to make the right decision inside of this and determine what course of action to take next, we need to know what really happens. You can't have justice without truth. And this is the heartbeat of the command, God wanting there to be truth in his community of people, particularly in this setting, so that there can be justice. We actually carry that tradition on in our own legal system. If you think about somebody going to court and they go to give a testimony, they called as a witness, we have them swear, right? I swear to tell the whole, I swear to tell the the whole and nothing but the, we have to say like three times. <laughs> like I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So, help me God. There's even a prayer built into it to say we need help to know and to speak the truth because we know that truth is so essential in this place. But as we've seen throughout the Ten Commandments, one of the things we've recognized is that this isn't the last thing that God has to say about this topic. Now, oftentimes the Ten Commandments are God's first word on an issue, and then we see as we look at the rest of Scripture how this gets expanded and fleshed out. We can track the trajectory of the command and begin to see more depth and beauty and nuance than we even see in this. This is absolutely critical and important, but it's just the starting point. We go on and we can see this in some other passages and we see this actually in the first passage related to this command just a couple of chapters later. It's Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse one and we find this, it says, don't spread false rumors. So we're outside of the court context here and talking about speech and falsehood. Don't plot with evil people to act as a lying witness. Remember that phrase, we're gonna come back to it. Don't take sides with important people to do wrong. It's this temptation for us to take sides, things depending upon who we're talking to. When you act as a witness, don't stretch the truth to favor important people. There's this sense of like, how are we talking in the middle of all these things? This passage and others, if you look, take this command and they extend it out, they expand it to cover all kinds of dishonest speech don't lie, don't deceive, don't gossip, don't slander, don't even boast or exaggerate. Why? Why is this such a critical thing for God that his people would be people who speak the truth? I think there's a hint of it here actually in that passage. Remember that phrase, lying witness? The original language actually says, don't act as a violent witness. Don't act as a violent witness. See, there's something about deception that does harm. Lying actually hurts. Deception is destructive. Dishonesty does harm in all kinds of ways. And this is actually why falsehood displeases God so greatly, because he knows the consequences of what happens when we live or speak in untruthful ways. This is why God prohibits it in his people, because he knows that inherently lying does harm. This is why it displeases God and why he forbids it from his people, and if we've said numerous times in this context of this series that if God prohibits something in the Ten Commandments, then he's actually commanding us and encouraging us to take the opposite route, to do the opposite thing. So if God forbids lying, then he was actually commanding from his people is truth-telling. He wants us to be the kind of people who tell the truth. If what's false displeases God, then what's true actually pleases him. It brings him great joy and delight. And if deceit in all of its forms actually destroys, then what we see with the truth is that the truth builds up. The truth causes things to grow and to flourish, to be strong and stable when the deceit does the opposite. So if deceit destroys and the truth builds, then I want to explore how this happens in three dimensions today. I want to talk about how this plays out in our relationship with others. I want to talk about how it plays out in our relationship with ourselves. And then lastly, how it plays out in our relationship with God. The first place that we see it even in this command is this, that lies actually fracture our relationships, but the truth strengthens them lies fracture our relationships, but the truth strengthens them. We see this, of course, early on in the pages of Scripture. We're even thinking about Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery in Egypt and lying to their dad about it and seeing the brokenness that comes upon their father and their own relationships with their brother. We see about this, maybe in the most typical way in the Scripture, in seeing King Ahab and Jezebel plotting to lie about Naboth in order to take over his vineyard and the cost that actually has on Naboth's life. And we see it not only in the scriptures, we see it in our own world. This is Hall of Fame weekend for baseball fans. And when we get around this time, I mean, there's this huge debate in baseball. Do we let people who cheated into the Hall of Fame? people who use performance-enhancing drugs and whose stats are somewhat deceptive because of what they did, do we let them into the Hall of Fame? It's an ethical dilemma that we face where we can see in our news headlines people like Bernie Madoff and others whose lies, whose Ponzi schemes caused fractures in relationships and people's financial states. We even see it happen in our children's stories. Think about the story of Pinocchio. And what happens as Pinocchio lies? What happens is the first thing we see is that his, what happens, kids? His nose grows, right? But we see actually how this impacts all of his relationships. And of course, famously, there's the boy who cried wolf, who was out and decides like, oh, I'm gonna cry wolf. And he cries wolf and all all the people come and there is no wolf. And then he does it again. All the people come and there is no wolf. And then he does it again. All the people come and there is no Wolf, And then he does it again because there actually is a wolf. And what happens? Nobody comes. Nobody believes him anymore. There's something about lies that deteriorate our relationships and our communities. Thomas Aquinas put it this way. He said, it would be impossible for people to live together unless they believed one another as declaring the truth to one another. That it's actually telling the truth is actually the very at the very fabric, the very core of all of our relationships. This is why, as parents, uh, my wife and I are constantly talking to our kids about the importance of telling truth. Like, let's tell the truth, because when we know the truth, then we can actually build up our family and our relationships. It's critical to the life of a home. It's critical between parents and kids and spouses to actually have truth being played out there. It's what holds and strengthens the relationship. For those of us who are at schools, we know what happens when people lie and cheat and deceive and plagiarize and the kind of disruption that that causes inside of school systems. Or we know what it's like in the workplace for a coworker to lie about a project or for a business person to lie about a return to lie in some way about taxes or about investments. And we see the fracturing that comes in those places. We know what happens when we find out something about our friends. They told us one thing and the other thing was actually true. And how hard it is to rebuild that trust. We have a saying around new life oftentimes that we say that uh, trust is earned by drops but it's lost in bucketfuls. It's so true in our lives that when we break trust with one another, it's so hard to regain that. That's why the scriptures tell us over and over again, things like speak the truth in love to one another, or let your yes be yes and let your no be no. It's critical for the people of God to live together in Christ. Those who are being brought together, it's critical for us to speak the truth to one another and to keep our promises to be the kind of people whose words can be trusted, who actually prove out to be trustworthy people because that actually strengthens our relationships with each other. The second dimension we see this play out is actually in our own lives, that we see that lies actually splinter our souls, but it's the truth that binds us together. I was a junior in high school when uh, my high school first got the internet The end of my junior year, we had some sort of dial-up thing on the phone. You know, you had that you waited 15 minutes for the internet to actually connect. We all had Juno email accounts. It was a fantastic time of life. And I remember there was this girl in our school, I think she was a year above me, who was just fascinated by the internet. So she would be at school at 7 a.m. when the doors opened so she could get into the library and get online. And as soon as this, the last bell rang, she lined it for the library so she could get online and she would stay until they closed the doors. And she was like one of those two finger typers, like Pete Gregg, so she's like going to town, just typing away fully focused. And I remember having this conversation with her one day and I said, hey, what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm in a chat room. And she, I'm like, oh yeah. I'm like, well, who are you talking to? She's like, well, first of all, I need to know that I'm so-and-so and I live here and this is what I do. I said, what? She's like, yeah, I'm pretending to be this other person. And so I'm talking to this person. Like, well, you don't know who you're talking to if you're pretending to be some, someone else. And I realized, like, as much potential and power that the internet had for information had incredible potential for duplicity, that here she was being a different person every single day online than she is in real life. And for me, that was kind of the first encounter of that. I lived in this small town where duplicity was hard. You had 2,700 people, and you went to school with the people that you went to church with, and the people that you worked with, and the people that you lived next to, and the people you were on the team with. And your lives sort of overlapped all of the time. And if you tried to be one person here and a different person here, it didn't really work because it was the same people. <laughs> they knew who you were, and all of a sudden, I encountered this and like, whoa. But the truth is, is that we now all live in very fractured lives. We don't work with the people we worship with. We don't worship with the people that we live near. We don't live near the people that we go out with on the weekends. And none of those people are the same people that we interact with online. And it's possible for us to live completely different lives in each of these different areas. It's possible for us in this age and time to not actually be true in any point, in any sphere, in any time of the day. It's constantly presenting something different in this arena and that arena than what's actually true of who we are. It's possible for us to actually lose touch with our true identity. And the truth is, this actually does something to our souls, it confuses us and who we are, it violates the integrity that we're meant to live with to actually be true, whole people. We desire so much in our world authenticity, and yet we feel the pressure over and over again to be fake, to be different people, to please different groups in all of these different places. It violates our integrity and undercuts our character, the very thing that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, wants to build inside of us. And truth be told, it's exhausting. Ralph Keyes put it this way. He said, Liars must play a continual game of I've got a secret. Eternal vigilance is the price of duplicity. At a minimum, sustaining deceit levies a stressful tax of constant alertness what did I tell this person? What did I tell that person? What did I say the last time? Who is I here? How do I keep this from this person? How do I make sure that this area of my life doesn't bleed over into this area of my life? How do I keep these things separate? As an ancient proverb puts it, liars need good memories. It's exhausting. And God did not intend for us to live that kind of life. The scriptures say things like God desires truth in the inner or hidden or secret places. He wants truth to be buried deep inside of us and to consume every part of our lives. The scriptures encourage us to walk with integrity, to be the same person in private that we are in public, to be the same person online that we are in the workplace, to be the same person on the weekend on Friday and Saturday night that we are on Sunday morning, the same person on Sunday morning that we are on Tuesday afternoon. He's calling us into that kind of life to be single-minded people because he knows in the middle of that, there's actually great freedom. There's a great freedom of being known and being loved and being accepted and being truly who you are, who God intended and made us to be and knows that that is the gift that we bring to the world, is bearing God's image in the unique way that he created us. So when we live this way, when we walk with integrity, what happens is that our souls are actually bound together. Our character is developed. Our identity is bound up in the truth of who we are in Christ. And we live with integrity amongst our, in ourselves and with others. The third thing that we see is this, is that lies actually sever our connection with God, but the truth unites us with him. Truth is this idea oftentimes described as that which is in accordance with reality. That truth maintains a certain kind of equality in the world. But lies actually set up alternate realities. They create inequality between what is and what's perceived. What is and what's said. What is and what was something else. It creates something that's unreal. But God himself is the creator and sustainer of all that is real. He's the creator and sustainer of ultimate reality because he is the truth, he is what is real. God is described as full of truth, as one who reveals things as they are, who distinguishes between light and dark, good and evil, true and false. And when we lie or we deceive, we actually sever our relationship with reality and sever our relationship with God. See, lies have this sort of destructive end game in mind. And the reason they have that is because they not only have a destructive end, they have a demonic origin. The scriptures say that Satan is the father of lies, that this all comes out of his evil schemes and his evil ways. We see this from the opening pages of scripture as we encounter Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent approaches them and begins to lie to them, deceives them, and begins to convince them to believe something about God that is not true begins to convince them to believe that God is actually withholding something from them that is valuable and necessary to their life and flourishing rather than recognizing that God is generous and that God is protecting them from things that can cause their ultimate harm. The lie severs us from the truth, separates us to God, but the truth unites us to him. Even if we think about these three things, we can see that this is actually what the enemy is trying to do in our lives. He wants to sever our connection with God. He wants to splinter our souls and to cause our character to be eroded inside of us, for us to violate our integrity and to not live truly in the truth of who God is and wants to fracture our relationships with one another deteriorate and destroy community. But Jesus, the one who is actually the truth, who's full of grace and truth, actually comes to be the way, the truth in life, and to actually bring us into these other places. That Jesus is the one, the truth, that unites us with God. He reveals what God's really like and reconciles us to God, brings us back into relationship with him, that Jesus is the one who binds up our broken souls, who takes those places inside of us that have been splintered and fractured and begins to heal them and restore them and connect them. He's the one that through the spirit that he sends, actually develops character and Christ-likeness inside of us. And he's the one that allows us to live in right relationship with one another, who brings us together in him and strengthens our relationships by teaching us to live in accordance with the truth. This is why God desires and delights in truthfulness so much— We can see this maybe in taking this passage from John where John is writing to a church, but we can hear God's heart in the middle of this. God's heart for us. It says this, it says, I was overjoyed when the brothers and sisters arrived and spoke highly of your faithfulness to the truth, shown by how you live according to the truth. I have not greater joy than this to hear that my children live according to the truth. When we live in this way, when we live truthful lives, our relationships are strengthened. When we live truthful lives, our souls are knit together inside of us. When we live truthful lives, we live in right relationship with God. And all of that causes our lives to be lived with the kind of integrity that brings God great joy. This is the life that God invites us into. And we know that all of this is only made possible through Jesus. This is why we come here on Sundays. We come to the table. We come to the place where truth is revealed. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we want to become more and more like God, be made and shaped and fashioned to his image, then we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you do this work inside of us? Would you reconcile us with God? Would you knit us together on the inside? And would you bind us together as a community that we might live in such a way that our lives put you on display for the world. So we come to the table now with this great prayer in mind. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you, to your table, to the table where we know the truth of who you are. And we ask today that you would do the work inside of us that only you can do. Would you show us what God is like? Would you bring us into right relationship with you? Would you bring us into right relationship with ourselves? And would you bring us into right relationships with one another? May you teach us and show us and help us to live in the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.